uh, I'm so excited to be able to share some of the things that we're going to be talking about. So, Father, we thank you for um, this season again and uh, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, this portion of Scripture that, that we're going to be looking at and uh, studying even tonight, that uh, we know that even as Isaiah was told that these things will come to pass, not that they might come to pass or it's a possibility, but you've given us a timeline of these events that are going to culminate to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I pray that as we talk about Babylon, a very important subject here, that we would have some clarity and understanding of what the Scripture says about Babylon, the future of Babylon, and, Lord, what it means for us. I pray that you'd bless the teaching of your word. And, again, I also pray that you bless the children as they're doing December to Remember the youth upstairs, so many of them in the middle schoolers and high school room, that you administer to them uh, the word of God. And Lord, that we would leave here excited and rejoicing that we've been here. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you need a Bible, Jerry's got a few Bibles in his hands in the back. We're going to cover chapter 13, maybe move into chapter 14 here tonight. Again, speaking of Babylon, there's some on the front platform. But as we move into chapter 13, we read that the burden against Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. And of course, we have been reading about how Isaiah has been prophesying against Israel, the house of Israel, against Judah and Jerusalem. And in this section of Isaiah in chapters 13 through 23, we are in a section where he's going to be giving prophecies, these burdens against certain nations here um, that are going to be uh, there that surround Israel. We know that the judgment of God, you know, begins in the house of God, but it doesn't end there. And God is dealing with the house of Israel, saying that uh, the Assyrians are going to come in, uh, like uh, the great rivers of the Assyrians that overflow and come into the ten northern tribes and even into Judah. They would go off into captivity. And then we also know that Babylon here would take the house of Judah into captivity. That would take place over a hundred years after Isaiah is given this prophecy. And we know that that would take place beginning in about 605 BC. So here is Isaiah in this section that's going to be given this burden. And that word burden, it simply means a, a heavy message, a weighty importance, literally is what it means, about how God's going to deal with these nations. Yes, he would use the Assyrians to, to bring judgment on the ten northern tribes of the house of Israel. He would use Babylon to take Judah off into captivity because of their disobedience. You remember that on Mount Sinai that God had made a covenant with his people and said that if you follow after me that you're going to be blessed. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to defeat the enemies uh, that come against you. But if you go after false gods, which they are doing at this time that Isaiah is ministering, then what's going to happen is you're going to be uh, defeated. There's going to be you know, plagues. There's going to be drought. And you're going to go off into captivity. So God would use those empires 
to come and bring judgment on his own people, but also we see that God's going to deal with these nations as well. So here is Babylon that is being spoken of. Now we know that at the time that Isaiah is writing this prophecy, Babylon was the little empire that of course would become a world power. And Judah, again, taken away from uh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem destroyed eventually by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army. So the prophecies are given when Babylon, at this time in chapters 13 and 14, was really a small empire. They were not very powerful. They were not really known. It was the Assyrians at this time that was powerful. But Babylon's going to rise to power. Now, as we go through these chapters, the other thing, and I've mentioned this as we go through Isaiah, that Isaiah, going through the prophecies, which are amazing, that we do have to think a little bit and sort uh, the prophecies out. Because Isaiah changes topics quickly oftentimes from one verse to the next. And also Isaiah is going to give prophecies that we will see that there was a near fulfillment that ended up being fulfilled. But then mixed in with the prophecies are far or what's called future fulfillment, which has not yet been fulfilled. So that's what we're going to be seeing here, even as we go through this chapter again, reading the burden against Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. We read that, lift up a banner in verse 2 on the high mountain, raise your voice to them, wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones, and I have also called my mighty ones for my anger and those who rejoice in my exaltation. Now, as we talk about Babylon, Babylon is, is mentioned next to Jerusalem more than any other place in the scriptures. And we also know that Babylon is mentioned from Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. So all throughout scripture, Babylon is mentioned. You might want to take some notes because I'm going to be making some references to different scriptures in, in what we are reading about here, this burden against Babylon. But there are a sets of chapters that you might want to write down beginning with Genesis chapter 10 and chapter 11. That's when Babylon is first mentioned. Then you have Isaiah, the prophecies against Babylon, in chapters 13 and 14. Then you also have Jeremiah that we're going to see, which are long chapters, chapters 50 and 51, that also talk about the judgment against Babylon. And then the book of Revelation, chapters 17 and 18. So those are four sets of, of dual chapters that you want to look at to kind of get a feeling of Babylon. Because as we go through this prophecy, there can be a lot of discussion. There can be a lot of you know, uh, debate about what exactly is being said here. And there are some things that we can look at and sort out. And that's what I hope to do, um, to be able to do that. But there are some things that we may not be able to be real dogmatic about. Babylon is first mentioned, as I said, to, in Genesis chapter 10 and chapter 11. Nimrod, who was a mighty man, he was a mighty hunter, Genesis 10 tells us, who would rule over Babel, which again in Shinar is Babylon. And in those early nations that are mentioned, Nimrod being a, a mighty man on the earth, being a mighty hunter, is not speaking of that he went out and he was good at, you know, getting some wild game, you know, that he got his elk every year. It's not talking about that at all. When it talks about that he's a mighty hunter, 
then it's talking about how he went out and he killed men and that he conquered that area in Shinar and he ruled over it. So he was one that it speaks of rebellion against God and he was a very violent man. You go to Genesis chapter 11, what do we have the story there? The story of the Tower of Babel. And the story of the Tower of Babel is when uh, the sons of men of the earth, this is after the flood, got together. There was one language, and they desired uh, to build a tower that would go up to heaven. And they were doing it in rebellion against God. And God said, let us go down and see, uh, reference to the Trinity, and then uh, would spread man out and would confuse their language, and thus the name Babel. Uh, so man was spread out at that time. They did not heed the command to, after the flood to go out and, and, and multiply the earth. They were going to stay in one place. So when you look at, at Babylon, when you look at the Tower of Babel and Nimrod, it speaks of rebellion against God. It speaks about uh, worldliness and carnality and sin. And when you go through the scriptures, I think that Babylon is much more than just an empire that rose to power that would take the uh, children of Israel, of Judah, away captive for 70 years, and Nebuchadnezzar, and we read a lot about that in the book of Daniel. It's more than that. Uh, I think that Babylon very much symbolizes a worldly system. It, you can trace all of false teaching and rebellion back to the Tower of Babel, back to Babylon, and it speaks of a worldly system that eventually is going to be destroyed in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. And in that, what we see as we are ending the tribulation period at that point in the book of Revelation is that religious Babylon, that false religious system, as there's going to be a worldwide false religious church that will be on the scene. At first, it is supported by the Antichrist. It's, it's the woman riding the beast, and the beast turns on the woman and destroys that, that false religious system that is going to be in place in the tribulation period in the first half. And then chapter 18 is commercial Babylon. So the Antichrist who will be on the scene that we know that he's going to be a political leader, he's going to be a religious leader, and he's going to be an economic leader. He's going to have his political headquarters, it seems like, in, in Rome. He's going to have a religious headquarters in Jerusalem because he's going to do what? Second Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us, as well as chapter 13 of the book of Revelation, tells us that he's going to go into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, set up an image of himself, and he's going to be commanded to be worshipped as God. He's under the direct influence of Satan himself. And we know that in chapter 14, that this is going to speak more of the king of Babylon. It's going to speak of how Lucifer fell because of his pride desiring to be worshipped. So the Antichrist, the political headquarters in Rome, there's going to be a religious headquarters in Jerusalem, and then the commercial headquarters in Babylon. And what we're going to see here that I believe the scripture does talk about a Babylonian system that is there that speaks of the world and rebellion against God that is going to eventually come to an end. And as we go through this, hopefully I can make sense of it so uh, we can have some understanding. Uh, hopefully I'm not going to be babbling and, um, and to be able to sort some of this out. So in verses 2 and 3, we see that
that it speaks of that Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians. And of course, that would be fulfilled in 536 B.C. Matter of fact, in Isaiah chapter 45, when we get there, it's also going to speak about how Babylon fell. And God's going to name Cyrus, who was the leader of the Medes and the Persians, by name over 100 years before it was written, that would come in and and take uh, over Babylon and um, be able to uh, then usher in the Medes and the Persians as the world power. But let's continue to, to read because... All of a sudden, the scene is going to change here. Verse 4, the noise of a multitude in the mountains, like that of many people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. They come from a far country and from the end of heaven, the Lord and his weapons in indignation to destroy the whole land. Verse 6, wail for the day of the Lord is at hand and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp and every man's heart will melt and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them and they will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another and their faces will be like flames. Verse 9, behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate and he will destroy its sinners from it for the stars of heaven their constellations will not give their light the sun will be darkened in its going forth and the moon will not cause its light to shine so as we read these verses we see a time that Babylon is described being destroyed. It's going to be a terrible time. It's going to be a time where we see that it is the day of the Lord in verse 6 and in verse 9. Verse 6 again, well, the day of the Lord is at hand. Verse 9, behold, the day of the Lord comes. Now that's an important term. You might want to underline it. And this is really important because over the last couple of years, of, uh, I've already mentioned that there's been a lot of attention given to certain books and certain prophecies that, that uh, interpretation of prophecies that have come out that have dealt with like the four blood moons. Uh, a lot of attention I remember given in 2014, 2015, all kinds of books, all kinds of questions. The four blood moons are going to come, which means that something bad's going to happen, followed by something good, and uh, a lot of interpretations about it, that there's going to be judgment that's going to come to America. And then also what we have seen, that even this year, the number one Google hit is the end of the world, because there's been a lot of attention on the total eclipse and the great sign in heaven, September the 23rd, some of you maybe remember that. And I think the eclipse was like on August the 20th, something like that. And then there are those who are writing that to the great sign that's going to be fulfilled as the constellations are going to come together as described in Revelation chapter 12, that that's going to be the you know a day of the rapture and all of this. And people really got into that. And even, listen, there were some really decent Bible teachers that I've heard that was pulling out out from Joel 2 and from the prophets about how the moon is not going to to give its light and the sun and the moon's going to turn to blood. But what they were doing is misapplying it. 
So that's why I want to bring some clarity because there are those who are now saying, because obviously, you know, the rapture didn't happen September 23rd, right? And there are those who were playing with numbers and saying, you know, from the time of the eclipse, you know, that happened in August to September 23rd is 33 days. And Jesus was 33 years old. And that means something. There's nowhere in the Bible does it ever talk about four blood moons. And you hear about the Shemitahs and all of this that was going to bring judgment in 2015, I believe, was the year of the Shemitah. In 2001 was 9-11. And then 2008 was the Shemitah, which the stock market crashed in 2015. So there's all this that has taken place. Again, books that are being written, all kinds of attention given to them. And then the press comes out and says, well, the Christians are expecting the rapture to happen on September the 23rd. And the world looks at us like a bunch of kooks because we do believe in the rapture of the church. But what is it that we don't understand or those who will put a date that Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour, okay? So can we get that clear? No one knows the day, the hour of the coming of the Lord. Jesus says, no one knows that I come when you least expect. So we don't know when the rapture of the church is going to take place. It can happen at any time, but we don't know when it's going to happen. But we can look at the events that are going on around us that point to that we, I believe, are in the last days as we've seen Israel become a nation. That is going to be something that we're going to be reminded of once again on New Year's Eve as we look at Ezekiel 38, as we look at Ezekiel 39, as we're going to go through Isaiah chapter 17 that may be tied into all of that. But we know that we are in very unique times and we are seeing the signs that Jesus spoke of that again the birth pangs even as what is being spoken here. But when you see that term, the day of the Lord, like spoken of here in the prophets in Joel chapter 2, when those Bible teachers pulled, you know, those verses out about the moon turning to blood and, and all of this and the great signs in heaven, they are pulling out that which is going to take place in the day of the Lord. So what's the day of the Lord? And again, I get email and I get questions. I get people even here that are saying, well, I'm being told we're in the tribulation period. Revelation chapter 12 actually takes place chronologically in the middle of the tribulation period. Listen, we are not in the tribulation period. The tribulation period begins in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, with the Antichrist making a covenant with Israel. Dan, uh, Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, that he's the rider that comes riding on a horse. That begins the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord, which Jesus spoke about, and which even Paul spoke about, even in the New Testament, I'm going to read it to you again. I'm sure that if you're with us in our Luke study, you're familiar with this. But Jesus said, take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day, what day? The day of the Lord come upon you unexpectedly. 
For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. That is a term for non-believers. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass. What things? The things that Jesus talked about in chapter 21. You might want to read that if you're not familiar with this and stand before the Son of God. It's a wonderful promise that Jesus gives to us that there is going to be a way of escape and that is we believers are going to be taken out of and away from the hour of tribulation that shall come upon the whole earth to test those who what dwell on the earth. So I believe that we're going to be raptured. The church is going to be taken as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 16 and 17 tell us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 50 through 56 tells us. And Jesus will also, he also taught on it in John chapter 14 that we're going to be snatched away before that hour of tribulation. That begins when the tribulation starts the day of the Lord. Okay? When we read the Old Testament here, we're going to see that the day of the Lord, just as we read, speaks of judgment. And it's not just judgment on Israel or on Babylon. It is judgment that we see here uh, that will come upon the whole world. That God is going to pour out his judgment on a Christ-rejected world during that time. So it starts with the tribulation period, seven years, Daniel's 70th week. That includes the second coming of Jesus Christ and then the millennium reign of Jesus Christ, the thousand-year reign. So that is all the day of the Lord. So when you are reading these things on the Internet and those who are saying this sign's going to happen and they start pulling out these verses that are you know, concerning the day of the Lord, we are not in the day of the Lord. Will you keep that in mind? And I think that's where a lot of Christians are confused. They're wondering, did the Bible get it wrong? You know, can we understand? Yes, we can understand. But again, the importance of keeping everything in context and the importance of going through the scriptures chapter by chapter and verse by verse helps us to do that. So what's going to happen? Verse 5 here again. The day of the Lord, they come from a far country, uh, from the ends of heaven. The Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. So weapons that to destroy the whole land, that did not happen in 536 B.C. I'll explain how Babylon was taken, which many of you know. In verse 8, it's interesting that it says that every man's heart will melt and they will be afraid and pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. Does it remind you of what Jesus said? That Jesus said that the signs that point to his second coming, that these signs are going to be like birth pangs. And even Paul would write about it. Again, writing in Luke, uh, we see that he would say, Jesus, in verse 25 of Luke 21, there will be signs in the heavens, sun, and in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth, distress of nations, where perplexity, the sea, and the waves roaring, and men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of heaven will be shaken and then they will see the son of man coming in the cloud with power and great glory so during the day of the lord we know that these things are spoken of that the signs that point to the soon return of jesus christ are like birth pangs even as paul would write in first thessalonians chapter 5 to remind you again that paul would write to the church um, that we are ones that as believers 
that, let me read it to you. Concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, the same term, so comes as a thief in the night. And when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. So they are confirming what Isaiah here is prophesying, that there's going to be, verse 8 is interesting, their faces will be like flames. We, we can read like Joel chapter 2 that speaks of that, Zechariah chapter 14, um, sudden destruction, Matthew chapter 24 as well. And then we continue in verse 9 and 10 that we read the day of the Lord. What we see here is um, that... Uh, the stars of heaven, their constellation will not give their light. The sun will be darkened and the going forth. Its moon will not cause its light to shine. In verse 11, I will punish the world for its evil. I have that underlined in my Bible. Not just Babylon. You see, we're talking more of just Babylon, the city itself. We're talking about the Babylonian worldly system that's going to come to an end. This world is going to come to an end. And it says here that I will punish the world for its evil and their wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud. I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make mortal more rare than fine gold and more, uh, man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore, verse 13, I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. Verse 14, it shall be as the hunted gazelle and as a sheep that no man takes up. Every man will turn to his own people and everyone will flee to his own land. And everyone who is found will be thrust through and everyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their children also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes and their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. So this is some pretty heavy things that I know that we are, are reading here. But we see that what is being talked about is there's going to be geologic upheaval uh, that is being talked about, that the earth will move out of her place. Do you remember uh, the day after Christmas in 2004, the, the tsunami that took place in the Indian Ocean? I think a lot of us uh, remember that because it killed 250,000 people, 250 to 300,000 people is the estimate of how many died in that, you know, in that tsunami that it caused. It was a 9.3 earthquake deep in, in the ocean floor, and it caused tsunamis to, to spread out on all those islands around the, the Indian Ocean. And uh, they don't know exactly how many died, but it was one of the worst natural disasters that ever happened. And I was reading an article where some scientists believed that for three seconds, the whole earth shook in that tsunami. We know that the culmination of these things are going to happen in the book of Revelation chapter 6, and I've read it to you, but I would make uh, reference to it in the sixth seal of Revelation chapter 6 that talks about that there's going to be geologic upheaval, that every island's going to be moved out of its place, um, that there's going to be cosmic disturbances that will take place in the sixth seal, and uh, it's very clear, and the sky will recede as a scroll, verse 14, as it's rolled up in every mountain an island moved out of its place. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as fig trees drops its lake figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Revelation chapter 6 is in what? 
the day of the Lord, all right? So this is where we see the culmination of these things. And it's interesting that, you know, every island is moved out of its place, great geologic upheaval. You know, when the books started to be written about prophecy, some of the older books, they, they were thinking um, when, you know, man developed nuclear weapons, and I remember in the 70s, that there are those who said, you know, there's going to be a nuclear exchange and move every island out of its place. I think it's clearly, as we match it with what the prophets say in the Old Testament, that there's going to be the earth that's going to, to be moved out of her place. And there are some scientists that believe that before the flood that the earth was upright on its axis. And that's why there was a tropical environment all the way around. That's why they found mammoth eating vegetation in the North Pole. Those who adhere to evolution won't tell you that because something happened very quickly because they found vegetation in his mouth that he froze. So something catastrophic happened and it is believed that as the waters came up from under the crust of the earth that it would then split the continents and there is uh, all kinds of uh, rocks that came out it's interesting too that scientists have found meteors that have salt water in them which means that they were thrust out and they've made their circle around and come back so there's the continents that would expand. We know that uh, the worldwide flood covered the earth and there was geologic upheaval and the earth moving perhaps on its axis to give us our seasons. There's no evidence of having seasons before the flood. It was, it was tropical, it was beautiful, it was like Hawaii, man, it was wonderful. So now in the tribulation period, even as Isaiah talks about the earth being moved out of her place, that is believed that perhaps that geologic upheaval will happen again with islands being removed and islands, mountains being removed and coming back, that the earth maybe perhaps will, will you know, rotate back on its axis and then we see that there's going to be geologic uh, restoration that's going to happen in the millennium reign. Just a thought. Just something that you can think about it when you go to bed tonight. And, um, and all that that's taken place. Haggai chapter 2 verse 6 talks about, For thus says the Lord that I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Um, so that's going to happen in the day of the Lord. And then in verse 17, Behold, I will stir up the meats against them who will not regard silver. As for gold, they will not delight in it. Also their bows will dash the young men to pieces. And they will have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not spare children. And Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. That is something to, to take note of. It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation. Nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there. But the wild beasts of the desert will lie there, and their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches will dwell there and the wild goats will caper there. You know what's interesting about the wild goats that are there? That there are some Hebrew translations that, that translate this wild goats into what is goats that have demons. It may be a demonic reference. 
What is also interesting, again, that it seems like Babylon is the center place of a lot of demonic activity and, and of course, false teaching and false uh, um, doctrine that comes out. It, it is that hint that's given to us in Scripture. Um, Joe, that uh, we welcome back, he was telling me that he f- flew over the Euphrates River. And I asked Joe, I said, hey, do you, you remember um, that Revelation chapter 9 tells us that there are four demons that are locked up in the Euphrates River, you know, kind of that will be released. And Joe's going, well, I'm kind of glad I, I didn't think about that when we're flying over. But it seems to be the center of demonic activity that is there in Shinar, in Babylon, in the Euphrates River. And some have suggested, it's just a suggestion here, that um, some ancient translations uh, read this more as uh, the the wild goats and, and what the rabbis would believe was the wild goats up in Babylon that uh, were demonic. I don't know, but I just thought that'd be interesting for you to hear. And the hyenas will howl in their uh, citadels and the jackals in their pleasant places. Her time is near to come and her days will not be prolonged. What happened was this with Babylon. Because I want you to take note here, verse 19, that um, it will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. How did God overthrow Sodom and Gomorrah? When you go to Jeremiah chapters 50 and 51 in the judgment against Babylon that is described to us there, the same thing is said. So did this happen? This is yet future because it did not happen. You see, as we read Babylon, that powerful empire, again, Nebuchadnezzar, he was the most powerful man on the face of the earth. And whatever he said was law. Whatever he said, you know, a decree or gave a law, that was law. And if he changed his mind five minutes later, then that became law as well. He had absolute control. And a real key to understand is in Daniel chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar had that dream of that image that was uh, made of uh, uh, image of a man that was made of different metals, it bothered him. So Nebuchadnezzar goes to his wise men. He goes to the you know astrologers and soothsayers, and he said, "Will you tell me the dream and the interpretation of the dream?" And it was the wise men that said, which were really ignorant men, said, "We can't do that." And so Daniel comes along and says, Nebuchadnezzar, I'll tell you the dream and I'll tell you the interpretation of the dream. And what he told him was this image that he saw made up of different metals. And Nebuchadnezzar, as he gave the interpretation, you are the head of gold. You're top dog. You're the most powerful king that ever lived. And you're going to eventually be replaced by the chest and arms of silver, which is the Medo-Persian Empire, and then the belly of brass, which is the Grecian Empire, Alexander the Great, and then the legs of iron, which are the Roman empires, and then the ten toes, the feet with clay mingled with iron, which speaks of uh, ten kings, Daniel chapter 2, this is important, Bible scholars say it's the very foundation of Bible prophecy that in the days of the ten toes will come the, the kingdom of God. And then this rock crushes that image at its feet. It crushes, and then the rock grows, of course, speaking of the kingdom of God. So Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3, what does he do? It's a story probably we're all familiar with. 
when he makes that image of all gold, again, he is rebelling against God. It's like Nimrod. It's like the Tower of Babel where they said that we will make a tower to heaven. And, and in that rebellion, he made an image all of gold like he was saying to Daniel and, and the interpretation of the prophecy that I will never come to an end. And when you hear the sound of the music, you need to bow down and worship the image which represents me. And it was Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those Hebrew captives that said, no way, we're not going to do it. And Nebuchadnezzar, who was a hothead, got angry. He threw them in the burning, fiery furnace. And he's down there on his portable throne. He's looking in, you know, and he's wanting to see them burn up. And he notices that they're walking around. And he says, I see three guys. There's a fourth like the Son of God. Come out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then he made a decree that, that everyone had to worship the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So he changed his mind. We know in chapter 4, keep this in mind, that Nebuchadnezzar would go insane for seven years as God humbled him. One of the things that we see, not only was there the pride of the house of Israel, remember when Isaiah was speaking a prophecy against them, and they were saying that we're going to build bigger and and. Uh, more and we're going to be better without the Lord. God deals with their pride and he's dealing with the pride of Babylon. He would deal with the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. And we're going to see next week, because I'm not going to get to it tonight, unless we want to go till 10 o'clock, that we know that pride is a major, major sin that God deals with because one thing that he will not do is share his glory with any man or any woman. And he will deal with us in our pride. And we need to be humbled before the Lord. So he's going to humble Babylon. He humbled Nebuchadnezzar. But then chapter 5 of the book of Daniel, there's Belshazzar, 536 BC. He's having this big party with a thousand of his lords. And he's toasting to the gods of Babylon with the vessels that came from the temple in Jerusalem the vessels that are sanctified for the use of the Lord. He's mocking God in doing that. And all of a sudden, there was a handwriting on the wall. A handwriting on the wall, many, many tekel euphorses. And again, the, the wise men of Babylon could not interpret the dream. And it was the queen mother that came out and said, listen, there is a man that ministered to your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. He can interpret it. And Daniel comes out at elderly age and he interprets the handwriting on the wall. And he says that many, many tackle your farces that Belshazzar, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. In other words, you're a lightweight and you're a dead man because you're going to be killed this night and your kingdom is going to be given over to the Medes and Persians. As he is saying that on the outside of Babylon, and Babylon was a magnificent city, about 15 square miles was the city, had large walls that surrounded the city. There are some historians that say that those walls were as high as 360 feet, as, as, as wide as six chariot, you know, uh, could, you know, horses with chariots race around it. And then the Euphrates River ran under the walls, and then there was an inner wall. And you notice that in verse 13, uh, 2 of chapter 13 here, that it says, wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. 
what happened was that Cyrus, who's named in chapter 45, that he diverts the flow of the Euphrates rivers away from Babylon. So the Medes and the Persians that night walk under the walls and they come to the inner walls and the gates were open. Even as Isaiah is prophesying. And they took the city, but they did not destroy the city. And so the city would remain, and uh, we know that it would remain for a while. Uh, the walls were left standing until 500 BC, and Babylon gradually fell into decay and has been deserted. Now, there are those who come along and say that for chapter 18 of the book of Revelation to be fulfilled, that Babylon literally has to be rebuilt, the old city of Babylon. And maybe some of you might recall in the late 80s and early 90s that Saddam Hussein, you know, was trying to do some building in Babylon and people were all excited saying, look, he's rebuilding Babylon. He didn't do that much, first of all. But there's a debate. There are some really good Bible teachers that say Babylon has to be rebuilt because it's going to be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. That has never happened. I think what we see is it's speaking of Revelation chapter 18. Read that chapter where commercial Babylon is being destroyed. And it speaks of the Babylonian system, the world's system that is going to be destroyed. And we read the description of Babylon, how the merchants of the world and the kings of the world mourn. It's destroyed in one hour like Sodom and Gomorrah, whether that is God that shakes the heavens and there's fire and brimstone that comes or it's weapons of mass destruction. This is taking place at the, about the time of the battle of Armageddon that's going to take place. And so all this is, is going to be fulfilled, I believe, in the tribulation period where Babylon is going to be destroyed. And when you read the description, it talks about the merchants from the sea. Well, ancient Babylon is landlocked. So there are those who come along and say, is it the United States? Is it New York? Is it Tokyo? Whatever the case may be. I don't know. You can read it and kind of come up with your own thoughts. But I do know this, and I want to close with this, and then we'll pick it up in chapter 14 next time, that this world is not where it's at, folks. And there is a Babylonian religious system that is growing even today with deception, even as it will be in place in the tribulation period. And that's why it's imperative that we here at Calvary Chapel, that we continue with the truth of the scriptures. Because if you don't know the truth, you're going to get deceived and you're going to get caught up in all kinds of weird stuff. And the thing about Babylon, there's all kinds of mixing of deception and stuff. And it's amazing to me how there are Christians today that will say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I believe in Buddha, and I believe in, you know, Taoism, and I believe in Confucius and all of this. You can mix it all together, but it's not going to hold. And I want to remind you again that when people talk to you in that way about what you know, makes Christianity unique, what makes Christianity true, why are the other religions false, Christianity is unique in this, that only Jesus Christ died for your sins. No one else did. And that's what we're going to really see here on Sunday when Jesus shows himself to those disciples and he says, look at my hands and my feet. Touch me, handle me. 
you see the scars that are there. No one else did that. Not Confucius, not Buddha, not Muhammad, any of them. Only Jesus Christ went to the cross for you to die for your sins. And what makes Christianity unique is there is an empty tomb in Jerusalem. Amen. He rose from the grave and every other religious leader is in the grave. He alone conquered sin and death, validating what he did, that he's the son of God. And as I think about that and tell people about that, that gives me great confidence that the word of God is true, that we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And this world is not our hope because it's going to come to a disastrous end. It's all going to go up in smokes like Sodom and Gomorrah. So what I pray, Christian, is that you and I would really be committed to living for Jesus and living for the kingdom of God and to have that confidence of assurance that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this chapter and so much that is here and so much to take in and notes to write down. But, Lord, I pray that for us, that we would understand that you you have not appointed your church to wrath. Jesus took the wrath for us. There's no generation of the church that has experienced your wrath, and I don't believe that we're going to experience when the wrath of the Lamb of God is poured out on a Christ-rejected world, that you're going to take us out of and away from the hour of tribulation. When that's going to be, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know the day or the hour. And we know we are to occupy till you come. So, Father, what my prayer is is that no one here would have confidence in the world or confidence in their flesh, or to begin to accept that which is false because it's real, deceptive. It may look good. It may feel good. It may be the norm of the culture. It may be embraced by many, but it is false. And we will get deceived. That we have the Bible be our final authority. And so much of the church today is, is accepting that, which is deceptive. Religious Babylon, but also even treading into commercial Babylon with the prosperity movement and all of this. Lord, may we be wise and attentive. And may not, we not be weighed down with worldliness and carousing and drunkenness, even as Jesus said that that day should overtake those who are going to dwell on the face of the earth. Lord, we want to be looking to you every single day and living for you and to know that you want to use us. You want to, Lord, do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And it doesn't mean that it won't be difficult. Lord, there's a kingdom that's going to be established even as that rock hit that image which represents man's kingdom and destroyed it. The kingdom of God will be established. So Lord, we want to be a voice of truth to others. And I pray if there is anyone that is here tonight that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, that he is your salvation, that there is none other that he loves you so much that he went to the cross for you and died for your sins and he rose again. 
And if you call on the name of the Lord, the scripture says you will be saved, realizing that you're a sinner that needs to be forgiven. That's why Jesus went to die for your sins, because our sins have separated us from God, and the wages of sin is death. But Jesus came to bring you life. He took the wrath for you. He died for you in place of you on that cross. And now you can come and call to him right where you are to pray, Jesus, I come and I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. I confess that I am a sinner. I believe you died on the cross for me and you rose from the grave and I ask that you sit upon the throne of my life. Lord, I thank you for dying for me. I want to know you and walk with you. And I thank you for this new beginning. In Jesus' name. And listen, if anybody by chance that is here, that you prayed that prayer, I'm going to stay around as we finish here. And, and I want to pray with you and bless you. Just let me know the decision you made. If you're listening on live stream or on the radio, that you would call the church and let us know um, that you made a decision for Christ. But for all of us, that we would leave this place again rejoicing in you because we have a wonderful future. We belong to a kingdom that will last forever. So again, bless everyone here. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand?